When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. A Jury of Her Peers by Susan Glaspell This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Corrie Samuel A Jury of Her Peers by Susan Glaspell When Martha Hale opened the storm door and got a cut of the north wind, she ran back for her big woollen scarf. As she hurriedly wound that round her head, her eye made a scandalised sweep of her kitchen. It was no ordinary thing that called her away. It was probably further from ordinary than anything that had ever happened in Dixon County. But what her eye took in was that her kitchen was in no shape for leaving, her bread all ready for mixing, half the flour sifted and half unsifted. She hated to see things half done, but she had been at that when the team from town stopped to get Mr. Hale, and then the sheriff came running in to say his wife wished Mrs. Hale would come too, adding, with a grin, that he guessed she was getting scary and wanted another woman along. So she had dropped everything right where it was. "'Martha,' now came her husband's impatient voice, "'don't keep folks waiting out here in the cold.' She again opened the storm door, and this time joined the three men and the one woman waiting for her in the big two-seated buggy. After she had the robes tucked round her, she took another look at the woman who sat beside her on the back seat. She had met Mrs. Peters the year before at the county fair, and the thing she remembered about her was that she didn't seem like a sheriff's wife. She was small and thin and didn't have a strong voice. Mrs. Gorman, Sheriff's wife before Gorman went out and Peters came in, had a voice that somehow seemed to be backing up the law with every word. But if Mrs. Peters didn't look like a sheriff's wife, Peters made it up in looking like a sheriff. He was, to a dot, the kind of man who could get himself elected sheriff, a heavy man with a big voice, who was particularly genial with the law-abiding, as if to make it plain that he knew the difference between criminals and non-criminals and right there it came into Mrs. Hale's mind, with a stab, that this man who was so pleasant and lively with all of them was going to the rights now as a sheriff. "'The country's not very pleasant this time of year,' Mrs. Peters at last ventured, as if she felt they ought to be talking as well as the men. Mrs. Hale scarcely finished her reply, for they had gone up a little hill and could see the right place now, and seeing it did not make her feel like talking. 
It looked very lonesome this cold March morning. It had always been a lonesome-looking place. It was down in a hollow, and the poplar trees around it were lonesome-looking trees. The men were looking at it, and talking about what had happened. The county attorney was bending to one side of the buggy, and kept looking steadily at the place as they drew up to it. "'I'm glad you came with me,' Mrs. Peters said nervously, as the two women were about to follow the men in through the kitchen door. Even after she had her foot on the doorstep, her hand on the knob, Martha Hale had a moment of feeling she could not cross that threshold. And the reason it seemed she couldn't cross it now was simply because she hadn't crossed it before. Time and time again it had been in her mind, I ought to go over and see Minnie Foster. She still thought of her as Minnie Foster, though for twenty years she had been Mrs. Wright. And then there was always something to do, and Minnie Foster would go from her mind. But now she could come. The men went over to the stove. The women stood close together by the door. Young Henderson, the county attorney, turned around and said, "'Come up to the fire, ladies.' Mrs. Peters took a step forward, then stopped. "'I'm not—cold,' she said. And so the two women stood by the door, at first not even so much as looking around the kitchen. The men talked for a minute about what a good thing it was the sheriff had sent his deputy out that morning to make a fire for them, and then Sheriff Peters stepped back from the stove, unbuttoned his outer coat, and leaned his hands on the kitchen table in a way that seemed to mark the beginning of official business. "'Now, Mr. Hale,' he said, in a sort of semi-official voice, "'before we move things about, you tell Mr. Henderson just what it was you saw when you came here yesterday morning.' The county attorney was looking around the kitchen. "'By the way,' he said, "'has anything been moved?' He turned to the sheriff. "'Are things just as you left them yesterday?' Peters looked from cupboard to sink, from that to a small worn rocker a little to one side of the kitchen table. "'It's just the same.' "'Somebody should have been here yesterday,' said the county attorney. "'Oh, yesterday,' returned the sheriff, with a little gesture, as of yesterday having been more than he could bear to think of. When I had to send Frank to Morris Centre for that man who went crazy, let me tell you, I had my hands full yesterday. I knew you could get back from Omaha by today, George, and as long as I went over everything here myself. Well, Mr. Hale, said the county attorney, in a way of letting what was past and gone go, tell us just what happened when you came here yesterday morning. Mrs. Hale, still leaning against the door, had that sinking feeling of the mother whose child is about to speak a piece. Lewis often wandered along, and got things mixed up in a story. He hoped he would tell this straight and plain, and not say unnecessary things that would just make things harder for Minnie Foster. He didn't begin at once, and she noticed that he looked queer, as if standing in that kitchen and having to tell what he had seen there yesterday morning made him almost sick. "'Yes, Mr. Hale?' the county attorney reminded. "'Harry and I had started to town with a load of potatoes,' Mrs. Hale's husband began. Harry was Mrs. Hale's oldest boy. He wasn't with them now, for the very good reason that those potatoes never got to town yesterday, and he was taking them this morning, so he hadn't been home when the sheriff stopped 
to say he wanted Mr. Hale to come over to the right place, and tell the county attorney his story there, where he could point it all out. With all Mrs. Hale's other emotions came the fear now that maybe Harry wasn't dressed warm enough. They hadn't any of them realised how that north wind did bite. "'We come along this road,' Hale was going on, with a motion of his hand to the road over which they had just come. "'And as we got inside the house, I says to Harry, "'I'm going to see if I can't get John Wright to take a telephone.' "'You see,' he explained to Henderson, "'unless I can get somebody to go in with me, "'they won't come out on this branch road, "'except for a price I can't pay. "'I'd spoken to Wright about it once before, "'but he put me off, saying folks talk too much anyway.' and all he asked was peace and quiet. Guess you know about how much he talked himself. But I thought maybe if I went to the house, and talked about it before his wife, and said all the women folks like the telephones, and that in this lonesome stretch of road it would be a good thing, well, I said to Harry that that was what I was going to say. Though I said at the same time that I didn't know as what his wife wanted made much difference to John. Now there he was saying things he didn't need to say. Mrs. Hale tried to catch her husband's eye, but fortunately the county attorney interrupted with, "'Let's talk about that a little later, Mr. Hale. I do want to talk about that, but I'm very anxious now to get along to just what happened when you got here.' When he began this time, it was very deliberately and carefully. I didn't see or hear anything. I knocked at the door, and still it was all quiet inside. I knew they must be up, it was past eight o'clock. So I knocked again, louder, and I thought I heard somebody say, Come in. I wasn't sure. I'm not sure yet. But I opened the door. This door, jerking a hand toward the door by which the two women stood. And there, in that rocker, pointing to it, sat Mrs. Wright. Everyone in the kitchen looked at the rocker. It came into Mrs. Hale's mind that that rocker didn't look in the least like Minnie Foster, the Minnie Foster of twenty years before. It was a dingy red, with wooden rungs up the back, and the middle rung was gone, and the chair sagged to one side. "'How did she look?' the county attorney was inquiring. "'Well,' said Hale, "'she looked queer.' "'How do you mean, queer?' As he asked it, he took out a notebook and pencil. Mrs. Hale did not like the sight of that pencil. She kept her eye fixed on her husband, as if to keep him from saying unnecessary things that would go into that notebook and make trouble. Hale did speak guardedly, as if the pencil had affected him too. Well, as if she didn't know what she was going to do next, and kind of done up. How did she seem to feel about your coming? Why, I don't think she minded, one way or other. She didn't pay much attention. I said, how do, Mrs. Wright? It's cold, ain't it? And she said, is it? And went on pleating at her apron. Well, I was surprised. She didn't ask me to come up to the stove, or to sit down, but just sat there, not even looking at me. And so I said, I want to see John. And then she laughed. I guessed you would call it a laugh. I thought of Harry and the team outside, so I said a little sharp, Can I see John? No, says she, kind of dull-like. Ain't he home? 
says I. Then she looked at me. Yes, says she, he's home. Then why can't I see him? I asked her, out of patience with her now. Cause he's dead, says she, just as quiet and dull, and fell to pleat in her apron. Dead? says I, like you do when you can't take in what you've heard. She just nodded her head, not getting a bit excited, but rocking back and forth. Why, where is he? says I, not knowing what to say. She just pointed upstairs like this, pointing to the room above. I got up, with the idea of going up there myself. By this time I didn't know what to do. I walked from there to here, then I says, Why, what did he die of? He died of a rope around his neck, says she, and just went on pleating at her apron. Hale stopped speaking, and stood staring at the rocker, as if he were still seeing the woman who had sat there the morning before. Nobody spoke. It was as if everyone was seeing the woman who had sat there the morning before. And what did you do then? The county attorney at last broke the silence. I went out and called Harry. I thought I might need help. I got Harry in and we went upstairs. His voice fell almost to a whisper. There he was, lying over the... I think I'd rather have you go into that upstairs, the county attorney interrupted, where you can point it all out. Just go on now with the rest of the story. Well, my first thought was to get that rope off. It looked... He stopped, his face twitching. But Harry, he went up to him, and he said, No, he's dead all right, and we'd better not touch anything. So we went downstairs. She was still sitting that same way. Has anybody been notified? I asked. No, says she, unconcerned. Who did this, Mrs. Wright? said Harry. He said it business-like, and she stopped pleating at her apron. I don't know, she says. You don't know, says Harry. Weren't you sleeping in the bed with him? Yes, says she, but I was on the inside. Somebody slipped a rope round his neck and strangled him, and you didn't wake up, says Harry. I didn't wake up, she said after him. We may have looked as if we didn't see how that could be, for after a minute she said, I sleep sound. Harry was going to ask her more questions, but I said maybe that weren't our business, maybe we ought to let her tell her story first to the coroner or the sheriff. So Harry went as fast as he could over to High Road, the river's place, where there's a telephone. And what did she do when she knew you had gone for the coroner? The attorney got his pencil in his hand, all ready for writing. She moved from that chair to this one over here. Hale pointed to a small chair in the corner and just sat there with her hands held together, and looking down. I got a feeling that I ought to make some conversation, so I said I had come in to see if John wanted to put in a telephone. And at that she started to laugh, and then she stopped and looked at me, scared. At the sound of a moving pencil, the man who was telling the story looked up. I dunno, maybe it wasn't scared, he hastened. I wouldn't like to say it was. Soon Harry got back, and then Dr. Lloyd came, and you, Mr. Peters, 
and so I guess that's all I know that you don't. He said that last with relief, and moved a little, as if relaxing. Everyone moved a little. The county attorney walked toward the stair door. I guess we go upstairs first, then out to the barn and around there. He paused and looked around the kitchen. You're convinced there was nothing important here? he asked the sheriff. Nothing that would point to any motive. The sheriff, too, looked all around, as if to reconvince himself. Nothing here but kitchen things, he said, with a little laugh for the insignificance of kitchen things. The county attorney was looking at the cupboard, a peculiar ungainly structure, half closet and half cupboard, the upper part of it being built in the wall, and the lower part just the old-fashioned kitchen cupboard. As if its queerness attracted him, he got a chair and opened the upper part and looked in. After a moment he drew his hand away, sticky. "'Here's a nice mess,' he said, resentfully. The two women had drawn nearer, and now the sheriff's wife spoke. "'Oh, her fruit,' she said, looking to Mrs. Hale for sympathetic understanding. She turned back to the county attorney and explained. She worried about that when it turned so cold last night. She said the fire would go out and her jars might burst. Mrs. Peter's husband broke into a laugh. Well, can you beat the woman, held for murder and worrying about her preserves? The young attorney set his lips. I guess before we're through with her, she may have something more serious than preserves to worry about. Oh, well, said Mrs. Hale's husband, with good-natured superiority. Women are used to worrying over trifles. The two women moved a little closer together. Neither of them spoke. The county attorney seemed suddenly to remember his manners, and think of his future. And yet, said he, with the gallantry of a young politician, for all their worries, what would we do without the ladies? The women did not speak, did not unbend. He went to the sink and began washing his hands. He turned to wipe them on the roller towel, whirled it for a cleaner place. Dirty towels! Not much for a housekeeper, would you say, ladies? He kicked his foot against some dirty pans under the sink. There's a great deal of work to be done on a farm, said Mrs. Hale, stiffly. To be sure, and yet, with a little bow to her, I know there are some Dixon County farmhouses that do not have such roller-towels." He gave it a pull, to expose its full length again. "'Those towels get dirty awful quick. Men's hands aren't always as clean as they might be.' "'Ah, loyal to your sex, I see,' he laughed. He stopped, and gave her a keen look. "'But you and Mrs. Wright were neighbours. I suppose you were friends, too.' Martha Hale shook her head. I've seen little enough of her of late years. I've not been in this house. It's more than a year. And why was that? You didn't like her? I liked her well enough, she replied with spirit. Farmers' wives have their hands full, Mr. Henderson. And then— She looked around the kitchen. Yes, he encouraged. It never seemed a very cheerful place said she, more to herself than to him. No, he agreed, I don't think anyone would call it cheerful. 
I shouldn't say she had the home-making instinct. Well, I don't know as Wright had either, she muttered. You mean they didn't get on very well? he was quick to ask. No, I don't mean anything, she answered with decision. As she turned a little away from him, she added, But I don't think a place would be any the cheerfuller for John Wright's being in it. I'd like to talk to you about that a little later, Mrs. Hale, he said. I'm anxious to get the lay of things upstairs now. He moved toward the stair door, followed by the two men. I suppose anything Mrs. Peters does will be all right, the sheriff inquired. She was to take some clothes in for her, you know, and a few little things. We left in such a hurry yesterday. The county attorney looked at the two women they were leaving there alone among the kitchen things. Yes, Mrs. Peters, he said, his glance resting on the woman who was not Mrs. Peters, the big farmer woman who stood behind the sheriff's wife. Of course Mrs. Peters is one of us, he said, in a manner of entrusting responsibility. And keep your eye out, Mrs. Peters, for anything that might be of use. No telling, you women might come upon a clue to the motive, and that's the thing we need. Mr. Hale rubbed his face after the fashion of a showman getting ready for a pleasantry. "'But would the women know a clue if they did come upon it?' he said. And having delivered himself of this, he followed the others through the stair door. The women stood motionless and silent, listening to the footsteps, first upon the stairs, then in the room above them. Then, as if releasing herself from something strange, Mrs. Hale began to arrange the dirty pans under the sink, which the county attorney's disdainful push at the foot had deranged. "'I'd hate to have men coming into my kitchen,' she said testily, snooping round and criticising. "'Of course it's no more than their duty,' said the sheriff's wife, in her manner of timid acquiescence. "'Duty's all right,' replied Mrs. Hale bluffly. "'But I guess that deputy sheriff that come out to make the fire might have got a little of this on.' She gave the roller-towel a pull. Wish I'd thought of that sooner. Seems mean to talk about her for not having things slicked up, when she had to come away in such a hurry. She looked around the kitchen. Certainly it was not slicked up. Her eye was held by a bucket of sugar on a low shelf. The cover was off the wooden bucket, and beside it was a paper bag, half full. Mrs. Hale moved toward it. She was putting this in there, she said to herself, slowly. She thought of the flour in her kitchen at home, half sifted, half not sifted. She had been interrupted, and had left things half done. What had interrupted Minnie Foster? Why had that work been left half done? She made a move, as if to finish it. Unfinished things always bothered her. And then she glanced round, and saw that Mrs. Peters was watching her and she didn't want Mrs. Peters to get that feeling she had got of work begun, and then for some reason not finished. "'It's a shame about her fruit,' she said, and walked toward the cupboard that the county attorney had opened, and got on the chair, murmuring, "'I wonder if it's all gone.' It was a sorry enough-looking sight, but here's one that's all right,' she said at last. She held it toward the light. "'This is cherries, too.' She looked again. I declare I believe that's the only one." With a sigh she got down from the chair, went to the sink and wiped off the bottle. 
she'll feel awful bad after all her hard work in the hot weather. I remember the afternoon I put up my cherries last summer. She set the bottle on the table, and with another sigh started to sit down in the rocker. But she did not sit down. Something kept her from sitting down in that chair. She straightened, stepped back, and, half turned away, stood looking at it, seeing the woman who had sat there, pleating at her apron. The thin voice of the sheriff's wife broke in upon her. I must be getting those things from the front-room closet. She opened the door into the other room, started in, stepped back. You coming with me, Mrs. Hale? she asked nervously. You—you you could help me get them. They were soon back. The stark coldness of that shut-up room was not a thing to linger in. My! said Mrs. Peters, dropping the things on the table and hurrying to the stove. Mrs. Hale stood examining the clothes the woman who was being detained in town had said she wanted. Right was close, she exclaimed, holding up a shabby black skirt that bore the marks of much making over. I think maybe that's why she kept so much to herself. I suppose she felt she couldn't do her part. And then you don't enjoy things when you feel shabby. She used to wear pretty clothes, and be lively, when she was Minnie Foster, one of the town girls, singing in the choir. But that—oh, that was twenty years ago. With a carefulness, in which there was something tender, she folded the shabby clothes, and piled them at one corner of the table. She looked up at Mrs. Peters, and there was something in the other woman's look that irritated her. She don't care she said to herself. Much difference it makes to her whether Minnie Foster had pretty clothes when she was a girl. Then she looked again, and she wasn't so sure. In fact, she hadn't at any time been perfectly sure about Mrs. Peters. She had that shrinking manner, and yet her eyes looked as if they could see a long way into things. "'This all you was to take in?' asked Mrs. Hale. "'No.' said the sheriff's wife. She said she wanted an apron. Funny thing to want, she ventured, in her nervous little way, for there's not much to get you dirty in jail, goodness knows. But I suppose just to make her feel more natural, if you're used to wearing an apron. She said they were in the bottom drawer of this cupboard. Yes, here they are, and then her little shawl that always hung on the stair door. She took the small grey shawl from behind the door leading upstairs, and stood a minute looking at it. Suddenly Mrs. Hale took a quick step toward the other woman. Mrs. Peters. Yes, Mrs. Hale? Do you think she did it? A frightened look blurred the other thing in Mrs. Peters' eyes. Oh, I don't know, she said, in a voice that seemed to shrink away from the subject. "'Well, I don't think she did,' affirmed Mrs. Hale stoutly, asking for an apron and her little shawl, worrying about her fruit. "'Mr. Peters says—' Footsteps were heard in the room above. She stopped, looked up, and then went on in a lowered voice. "'Mr. Peters says—it looks bad for her. Mr. Henderson is awful sarcastic in a speech, and he's going to make fun of her saying she didn't wake up. For a moment Mrs. Hale had no answer. Then—well, I guess John Wright didn't wake up when they was slipping that rope under his neck, she muttered. 
No, it's strange, breathed Mrs. Peters. They think it was such a funny way to kill a man. She began to laugh. At sound of the laugh, abruptly stopped. That's just what Mr. Hale said, said Mrs. Hale, in a resolutely natural voice. There was a gun in the house. He says that's what he can't understand. Mr. Henderson said, coming out, that what was needed for the case was a motive, something to show anger, or sudden feeling. "'Well, I don't see any signs of anger around here,' said Mrs. Hale. "'I don't—' She stopped. It was as if her mind tripped on something. Her eye was caught by a dish-towel in the middle of the kitchen table. Slowly she moved toward the table. One half of it was wiped clean, the other half messy. Her eyes made a slow, almost unwilling turn to the bucket of sugar and the half-empty bag beside it. Things begun, and not finished. After a moment she stepped back, and said in that manner of releasing herself, "'Wonder how they're finding things upstairs. I hope she had it a little more red up up there. You know,' she paused, and feeling gathered. "'It seems kind of sneaking, locking her up in town, and coming out here to get her own house to turn against her.' "'But Mrs. Hale,' said the sheriff's wife, "'the law is the law.' "'I suppose tis.' answered Mrs. Hale shortly. She turned to the stove, saying something about that fire not being much to brag of. She worked with it for a minute, and when she straightened up she said aggressively, "'The law is the law, and a bad stove is a bad stove. How do you like to cook on this?' pointing with the poker to the broken lining. She opened the oven door, and started to express her opinion of the oven. But she was swept into her own thoughts thinking of what it would mean, year after year, to have that stove to wrestle with. The thought of Minnie Foster trying to bake in that oven, and the thought of her never going over to see Minnie Foster. She was startled by hearing Mrs. Peters say, A person gets discouraged, and loses heart. The sheriff's wife had looked from the stove to the sink, to the pail of water which had been carried in from outside. The two women stood there silent, above them the footsteps of the men, who were looking for evidence against the woman who had worked in that kitchen. That look of seeing into things, of seeing through a thing to something else, was in the eyes of the sheriff's wife now. When Mrs. Hale next spoke to her, it was gently. "'Better loosen up your things, Mrs. Peters. We'll not feel them when we go out.' Mrs. Peters went to the back of the room to hang up the fur tippet she was wearing. A moment later she exclaimed, "'Why, she was piecing a quilt!' and held up a large sewing-basket, piled high with quilt pieces. Mrs. Hale spread some of the blocks on a table. "'It's log-cabin pattern,' she said, putting several of them together. "'Pretty, isn't it?' They were so engaged with the quilt that they did not hear the footsteps on the stairs. Just as the stair door opened, Mrs. Hale was saying, "'Do you suppose she was going to quilt it, or just knot it?' The sheriff threw up his hands. "'They wonder whether she was going to quilt it, or just knot it.' There was a laugh for the ways of women, a warming of hands over the stove, and then the county attorney said briskly, "'Well, let's go right out to the barn and get that cleared up.' 
"'I don't see as there's anything so strange,' Mrs. Hale said resentfully, after the outside door had closed on the three men. "'Our taking up our time with little things, while we're waiting for them to get the evidence. I don't see as it's anything to laugh about.' "'Of course they've got awful important things on their minds,' said the sheriff's wife, apologetically. They returned to an inspection of the block for the quilt. Mrs. Hale was looking at the fine, even sewing, and preoccupied with thoughts of the woman who had done that sewing, when she heard the sheriff's wife say, in a queer tone, "'Why, look at this one!' She turned to take the block held out to her. "'The sewing?' said Mrs. Peters, in a troubled way. "'All the rest of them have been so nice and even. But this one? Why, it looks as if she didn't know what she was about.' their eyes met. Something flashed to life, passed between them. Then, as if with an effort, they seemed to pull away from each other. A moment Mrs. Hale sat there, her hands folded over that sewing, which was so unlike all the rest of the sewing. Then she had pulled a knot and drawn the threads. "'Oh, what are you doing, Mrs. Hale?' asked the sheriff's wife, startled. "'Just pulling out a stitch or two that's not sewed very good,' said Mrs. Hale, mildly. "'I don't think we ought to touch things,' Mrs. Peters said, a little helplessly. "'I'll just finish up this end,' answered Mrs. Hale, still in that mild, matter-of-fact fashion. She threaded a needle, and started to replace bad sewing with good. For a little while she sewed in silence. Then— in that thin, timid voice, she heard, "'Mrs. Hale?' "'Yes, Mrs. Peters?' "'What do you suppose she was so nervous about?' "'Oh, I don't know,' said Mrs. Hale, as if dismissing a thing not important enough to spend much time on. "'I don't know as she was nervous. I so awful queer sometimes when I'm just tired.' She cut a thread, and out of the corner of her eye looked up at Mrs. Peters. The small, lean face of the sheriff's wife seemed to have tightened up. Her eyes had that look of peering into something. But next moment she moved, and said in her thin, indecisive way, "'Well, I must get those clothes wrapped. They may be through sooner than we think. I wonder where I could find a piece of paper. And string?' "'In that cupboard, maybe,' suggested Mrs. Hale, after a glance around. One piece of the crazy sewing remained unripped. Mrs. Peters' back turned, Martha Hale now scrutinised that piece, compared it with the dainty, accurate sewing of the other blocks. The difference was startling. Holding this block made her feel queer, as if the distracted thoughts of the woman, who had perhaps turned to it to try and quiet herself, were communicating themselves to her. Mrs. Peters' voice roused her. "'Here's a birdcage.' she said. Did she have a bird, Mrs. Hale? Why, I don't know whether she did or not. She turned to look at the cage Mrs. Peters was holding up. I've not been here in so long. She sighed. There was a man round last year selling canaries cheap, but I don't know as she took one. Maybe she did. She used to sing real pretty herself. Mrs. Peters looked around the kitchen. Seems kind of funny to think of a bird here. She half laughed, an attempt to put up a barrier. But she must have had one, 
or why would she have a cage? I wonder what happened to it. I suppose maybe the cat got it, suggested Mrs. Hale, resuming her sewing. No, she didn't have a cat. She's got that feeling some people have about cats, being afraid of them. When they brought her to our house yesterday, my cat got in the room, and she was real upset and asked me to take it out. My sister Bessie was like that, laughed Mrs. Hale. The sheriff's wife did not reply. The silence made Mrs. Hale turn round. Mrs. Peters was examining the birdcage. "'Look at this door,' she said slowly. "'It's broke. One hinge has been pulled apart.' Mrs. Hale came nearer. "'Looks as if someone must have been rough with it.' Again their eyes met, startled, questioning, apprehensive. For a moment neither spoke nor stirred. Then, Mrs. Hale, turning away, said briskly, "'If they're going to find any evidence, I wish they'd be about it. I don't like this place.' "'But I'm awful glad you came with me, Mrs. Hale.' Mrs. Peters put the birdcage on the table and sat down. "'It would be lonesome for me, sitting here alone.' "'Yes, it would, wouldn't it?' agreed Mrs. Hale, a certain determined naturalness in her voice. She had picked up the sewing but now it dropped in her lap, and she murmured in a different voice. "'But I tell you what I do wish, Mrs. Peters. I wish I had come over here sometimes when she was here. I wish I had.' "'But of course you were awful busy, Mrs. Hale. Your house, and your children.' "'I could have come,' retorted Mrs. Hale shortly. "'I stayed away because it weren't cheerful. And that's why I ought to have come. I—' She looked around. "'I've never liked this place. Maybe because it's down in a hollow, and you don't see the road. I don't know what it is, but it's a lonesome place, and always was. I wish I had come over to see Minnie Foster sometimes. I can see now.' She did not put it into words. "'Well, you mustn't reproach yourself,' counselled Mrs. Peters. "'Sometimes we just don't see how it is with other folks till—' something comes up. "'Not having children makes less work,' mused Mrs. Hale, after a silence. "'But it makes a quiet house, and right out to work all day, and no company when he did come in. "'Did you know John Wright, Mrs. Peters?' "'Not to know him. I've seen him in town. They say he was a good man.' "'Yes, good,' conceded John Wright's neighbour grimly. He didn't drink, and kept his word as well as most, I guess, and paid his debts. But he was a hard man, Mrs. Peters, just to pass the time of day with him." She stopped, shivered a little, like a raw wind that gets to the bone. Her eye fell upon the cage on the table before her, and she added almost bitterly, "'I should think she would have wanted a bird.' Suddenly she leaned forward, looking intently at the cage. But what do you suppose went wrong with it?" "'I don't know,' returned Mrs. Peters, "'unless it got sick and died.' But after she said it she reached over and swung the broken door. Both women watched as if somehow held by it. "'You didn't know her?' Mrs. Hale asked, a gentler note in her voice. "'Not till they brought her yesterday,' said the sheriff's wife. 
she—come to think of it, she was kind of like a bird herself, real sweet and pretty, but kind of timid and fluttery. How she did change! That held her for a long time. Finally, as if struck with a happy thought, and relieved to get back to everyday things, she exclaimed, "'Tell you what, Mrs. Peters, why don't you take the quilt in with you? It might take up her mind.' "'Why, I think that's a real nice idea, Mrs. Hale,' agreed the sheriff's wife, as if she too were glad to come into the atmosphere of a simple kindness. "'There couldn't possibly be any objection to that, could there? Now, just what will I take? I wonder if her patches are in here, and her other things.' They turned to the sewing-basket. "'Here's some red,' said Mrs. Hale, bringing out a roll of cloth. Underneath that was a box. "'Here, maybe her scissors are in here, and her things.' She held it up. "'What a pretty box! I'll warrant that was something she had a long time ago, when she was a girl.' She held it in her hand a moment. Then, with a little sigh, opened it. Instantly her hand went to her nose. Why? Mrs. Peters drew nearer, then turned away. There's something wrapped up in this piece of silk, faltered Mrs. Hale. This isn't her scissors, said Mrs. Peters, in a shrinking voice. Her hand not steady, Mrs. Hale raised the piece of silk. Oh, Mrs. Peters, she cried, it's— Mrs. Peters bent closer. "'It's the bird,' she whispered. "'But Mrs. Peters,' cried Mrs. Hale, "'look at it! Its neck! Look at its neck! It's all—other side, too!' She held the box away from her. The sheriff's wife again bent in closer. "'Somebody wrung its neck,' said she, in a voice that was slow and deep and then again the eyes of the two women met, this time clung together in a look of dawning comprehension, of growing horror. Mrs. Peters looked from the dead bird to the broken door of the cage. Again their eyes met, and just then there was a sound at the outside door. Mrs. Hale slipped the box under the quilt pieces in the basket, and sank into the chair before it. Mrs. Peters stood holding the table. The county attorney and the sheriff came in from outside. "'Well, ladies,' said the county attorney, as one turning from serious things to little pleasantries, "'have you decided whether she was going to quilt it or not it?' "'We think,' began the sheriff's wife, in a flurried voice, "'that she was going to not it.' He was too preoccupied to notice the change that came in her voice on that last. "'Well, that's very interesting, I'm sure.' he said tolerantly. He caught sight of the birdcage. "'Has the bird flown?' "'We think the cat got it,' said Mrs. Hale, in a voice curiously even. He was walking up and down, as if thinking something out. "'Is there a cat?' he asked absently. Mrs. Hale shot a look up at the sheriff's wife. "'Well, not now,' said Mrs. Peters. They're superstitious, you know. They leave." She sank into her chair. The county attorney did not heed her. "'No sign at all of anyone having come in from the outside,' he said to Peters, 
in the manner of continuing an interrupted conversation, their own rope. Now, let's go upstairs again and go over it piece by piece. It would have to have been someone who knew just the... The stair door closed behind them, and their voices were lost. The two women sat motionless, not looking at each other, but as if peering into something, and at the same time holding back. When they spoke now, it was as if they were afraid of what they were saying, but as if they could not help saying it. She liked the bird, said Martha Hale, low and slowly. She was going to bury it in that pretty box. When I was a girl, said Mrs. Peters, under her breath, my kitten, there was a boy took a hatchet, and before my eyes, before I could get there, she covered her face an instant. If they hadn't held me back, I would have— She caught herself, looked upstairs where footsteps were heard, and finished weakly. Hurt him. Then they sat, without speaking or moving. I wonder how it would seem, Mrs. Hale at last began, as if feeling her way over strange ground, never to have had any children around. Her eyes made a slow sweep of the kitchen, as if seeing what that kitchen had meant through all the years. No, Wright wouldn't like the bird, she said after that, a thing that sang. She used to sing. He killed that too. Her voice tightened. Mrs. Peters moved uneasily. Of course we don't know who killed the bird. I knew John Wright was Mrs. Hale's answer. "'It was an awful thing was done in this house that night, Mrs. Hale,' said the sheriff's wife, "'killing a man while he slept, slipping a thing round his neck that choked the life out of him.' Mrs. Hale's hand went out to the birdcage. "'We don't know who killed him,' whispered Mrs. Peters wildly. "'We don't know.' Mrs. Hale had not moved. If there had been years and years of nothing, then a bird to sing to you. It would be awful. Still, after the bird was still. It was as if something within her, not herself, had spoken, and it found in Mrs. Peters something she did not know as herself. I know what stillness is, she said in a queer, monotonous voice. When we homesteaded in Dakota, and my first baby died, after he was two years old, and me with no other then." Mrs. Hale stirred. "'How soon do you suppose they'll be through looking for the evidence?' "'I know what stillness is,' repeated Mrs. Peters, in just that same way. Then she too pulled back. "'The law has got to punish crime, Mrs. Hale,' she said, in her tight little way. I wish you'd seen Minnie Foster, was the answer, when she wore a white dress with blue ribbons and stood up there in the choir and sang. The picture of that girl, the fact that she had lived neighbour to that girl for twenty years, and had let her die for lack of life, was suddenly more than she could bear. Oh, I wish I'd come over here once in a while, she cried. That was a crime. Who's going to punish that? We mustn't take on said Mrs. Peters, with a frightened look toward the stairs. "'I might a known she needed help,' 
I tell you, it's queer, Mrs. Peters. We live close together, and we live far apart. We all go through the same things. It's all just a different kind of the same thing. If it weren't, why do you and I understand? Why do we know what we know this minute?" She dashed her hand across her eyes. Then, seeing the jar of fruit on the table, she reached for it, and choked out. If I was you, I wouldn't tell her her fruit was gone. Tell her it ain't. Tell her it's all right, all of it. Here, take this in to prove it to her. She, she may never know whether it was broke or not." She turned away. Mrs. Peters reached out for the bottle of fruit, as if she were glad to take it, as if touching a familiar thing, having something to do, could keep her from something else. She got up, looked about for something to wrap the fruit in, took a petticoat from the pile of clothes she had brought from the front room, and nervously started winding that round the bottle. My she began, in a high, false voice. It's a good thing the men couldn't hear us, getting all stirred up over a little thing like a dead canary. She hurried over that. As if that could have anything to do with—with—my, wouldn't they laugh! Footsteps were heard on the stairs. Maybe they would, muttered Mrs. Hale. Maybe they wouldn't. No, Peters said the county attorney incisively. It's all perfectly clear, except the reason for doing it. But you know juries when it comes to women. If there were some definite thing, something to show, something to make a story about, something that would connect up with this clumsy way of doing it." In a covert way Mrs. Hale looked at Mrs. Peters. Mrs. Peters was looking at her. Quickly they looked away from each other. The outer door opened, and Mr. Hale came in. "'I've got the team round now,' he said. "'Pretty cold out there.' "'I'm going to stay here a while by myself,' the county attorney suddenly announced. "'You can send Frank out for me, can't you?' he asked the sheriff. "'I want to go over everything. I'm not satisfied we can't do better.' Again, for one brief moment, the two women's eyes found one another. The sheriff came up to the table. Did you want to see what Mrs. Peters was going to take in?" The county attorney picked up the apron. He laughed. Oh, I guess they're not very dangerous things the ladies have picked out. Mrs. Hale's hand was on the sewing-basket, in which the box was concealed. She felt that she ought to take her hand off the basket. She did not seem able to. He picked up one of the quilt-blocks, which she had piled on to cover the box. Her eyes felt like fire. She had a feeling that if he took up the basket she would snatch it from him. But he did not take it up. With another little laugh he turned away, saying, No, Mrs. Peters doesn't need supervising. For that matter, a sheriff's wife is married to the law. Ever think of it that way, Mrs. Peters?" Mrs. Peters was standing beside the table. Mrs. Hale shot a look up at her, but she could not see her face. Mrs. Peters had turned away. When she spoke, her voice was muffled. "'Not just that way,' she said. "'Married to the law,' chuckled Mrs. Peters' husband. He moved toward the door into the front room, and said to the county attorney, "'I just want you to come in here a minute, George. We ought to take a look at these windows.' "'Oh, windows!' 
said the county attorney, scoffingly. "'We'll be right out, Mr. Hale,' said the sheriff to the farmer, who was still waiting by the door. Hale went to look after the horses. The sheriff followed the county attorney into the other room. Again, for one final moment, the two women were alone in that kitchen. Martha Hale sprang up, her hands tight together, looking at that other woman with whom it rested. At first she could not see her eyes, for the sheriff's wife had not turned back, since she had turned away at that suggestion of being married to the law. But now Mrs. Hale made her turn back. Her eyes made her turn back. Slowly, unwillingly, Mrs. Peters turned her head, until her eyes met the eyes of the other woman. There was a moment when they held each other, in a steady, burning look, in which there was no evasion or flinching. Then Martha Hale's eyes pointed the way to the basket, in which was hidden the thing that would make certain the conviction of the other woman, that woman who was not there, and yet who had been there with them all through that hour. For a moment Mrs. Peters did not move. And then she did it. With a rush forward she threw back the quilt pieces, got the box, tried to put it in her handbag. It was too big. Desperately she opened it, started to take the bird out. But there she broke. She could not touch the bird. She stood there, helpless, foolish. There was the sound of a knob turning in the inner door. Martha Hale snatched the box from the sheriff's wife, and got it in the pocket of her big coat, just as the sheriff and the county attorney came back into the kitchen. "'Well, Henry,' said the county attorney facetiously, at least we found out that she was not going to quilt it. She was going to—what is it you call it, ladies?" Mrs. Hale's hand was against the pocket of her coat. "'We call it—not it, Mr. Henderson.'" End of A Jury of Her Peers by Susan Glaspell The Lost Duchess, by an anonymous author, as edited by Julian Hawthorne for the Lock and Key Library. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jonathan Trachtenberg. The Lost Duchess, edited by Julian Hawthorne. Chapter 1 has the duchess returned no your grace knowles came farther into the room he had a letter on a salver when the duke had taken it knowles still lingered the duke glanced at him is an answer required no your grace still knowles lingered something a little singular has happened the carriage has returned without the duchess and the men say that they thought her grace was in it what do you mean I hardly understand myself, Your Grace. Perhaps you would like to see Barnes? Barnes was the coachman. Send him up! When Knowles had gone, and he was alone, His Grace showed signs of being slightly annoyed. He looked at his watch. I told her she'd better be in by four. She says that she's not feeling well, And yet one would think that she was not aware Of the fatigue entailed in having the prince come to dinner, And a mob of people to follow. 
I particularly wished her to lie down for a couple of hours. Knowles ushered in not only Barnes, the coachman, but Moisey, the footman, too. Both these persons seemed to be ill at ease. The Duke glanced at them sharply. In his voice there was a suggestion of impatience. "'What is the matter?' Barnes explained as best he could. "'If you please, Your Grace, we waited for the Duchess outside Kane and Wilson's, the drapers. The Duchess came out, got into the carriage, and Moisey shut the door, and Her Grace said, "'Home, and if yet when we got home she wasn't there.' "'She wasn't where?' "'Her Grace wasn't in the carriage, Your Grace.' "'What on earth do you mean? Her Grace did get into the carriage, you shut the door, didn't you?' Barnes turned to Moisey. Moisey brought his hand up to his brow in a sort of military salute. He had been a soldier in the regiment in which, once upon a time, the Duke had been a subaltern. "'She did. The Duchess came out of the shop. She seemed rather in a hurry, I thought. She got into the carriage, and she said, "'Home, Moisey. I shut the door, and Barnes drove straight home. We never stopped anywhere, and we never noticed nothing happen on the way. And yet when we got home the carriage was empty.' The Duke started. "'Do you mean to tell me that the Duchess got out of the carriage while you were driving full pelt through the streets without saying anything to you, and without you noticing it?' "'The carriage was empty when we got home, Your Grace.' "'Was either of the doors open?' "'No, Your Grace.' "'You fellows have been up to some infernal mischief. You've made a mess of it. You never picked up the Duchess, and you're trying to palm this tail off on me to save yourselves.' Barnes was moved to adjuration. "'I'll take my Bible oath, Your Grace, that the Duchess got into the carriage outside Kane and Wilson's.' Moisey seconded his colleague. "'I will swear to that, Your Grace. She got into that carriage, and I shut the door, and she said, "'Home, Moisey!' The Duke looked as if he did not know what to make of the story and its tellers. "'What carriage did you have?' "'Her Grace's Brougham, Your Grace.' Knowles interposed. <clears throat> the Brougham was ordered because I understood the Duchess was not feeling very well, and there's a rather a high wind, Your Grace. The Duke snapped at him. What has that to do with it? Are you suggesting that the Duchess was more likely to jump out of a Brougham while it was dashing through the streets than out of any other kind of vehicle? The Duke's glance fell on the letter which Knowles had brought him when he first had entered. He had placed it on his writing-table. Now he took it up. It was addressed to his grace, the Duke of Datchet. Private, very pressing. The name was written in a fine, clear, almost feminine hand. The words in the left-hand corner of the envelope were written in a different hand. They were large and bold, almost as though they had been painted with the end of the penholder instead of being written with the pen. The envelope itself was of an unusual size, and bulged out as though it contained something else besides a letter. The Duke tore the envelope open. As he did so, something fell out of it on to the writing-table. It looked as though it was a lock of a woman's hair. As he glanced at it, the Duke seemed to be a trifle startled. The Duke read the letter. "'Your Grace will be so good as to bring five hundred pounds in gold "'to the Piccadilly end of the Burlington Arcade "'within an hour of the receipt of this. "'The Duchess of Datchet has been kidnapped. "'An imitation Duchess got into the carriage, "'which was waiting outside Kane and Wilson's, "'and she alighted on the road. "'Unless Your Grace does as you are requested, "'the Duchess of Datchet's left-hand little finger "'will be at once cut off "'and sent home in time to receive the Prince to dinner. "'Other portions of Her Grace will follow.' 
A lock of her grace's hair is enclosed with this as an earnest of our good intentions. Before 5.30 p.m., your grace is requested to be at the Piccadilly end of the Burlington Arcade with five hundred pounds in gold. You will there be accosted by an individual in a white top hat and with a gardenia in his buttonhole. You will be entirely at liberty to give him into custody or to have him followed by the police, in which case the Duchess's left arm, cut off at the shoulder, will be sent home for dinner, not to mention other extremely possible contingencies. But you are advised to give the individual in question the five hundred pounds in gold, because in that case the Duchess herself will be home in time to receive the Prince to dinner, and with one of the best stories with which to entertain your distinguished guests they ever heard. Remember, not later than five-thirty, unless you wish to receive Her Grace's little finger. The Duke stared at this amazing epistle when he had read it as though he found it difficult to believe the evidence of his eyes. He was not a demonstrative person, as a rule, but this little communication astonished even him. He read it again, then his hands dropped to his sides, and he swore. He took up the lock of hair which had fallen out of the envelope. Was it possible that it could be his wife's, the Duchess? Was it possible that a Duchess of Datchet could be kidnapped, in broad daylight, in the heart of London, and be sent home, as it were, in pieces? Had sacrilegious hands already been playing pranks with that great lady's hair? Certainly that hair was so like her hair that the mere resemblance made his grace's blood run cold. He turned on Messrs. Barnes and Moisey as though he would have liked to rend them. "'You scoundrels!' He moved forward as though the intention had entered his ducal heart to knock his servants down. But— if that were so, he did not act quite up to his intention. Instead, he stretched out his arm, pointing at them as if he were an accusing spirit. "'Will you swear that it was the Duchess who got into the carriage outside Kane and Wilson's?' Barnes began to stammer. "'I'll swear, Your Grace, that I, I thought—' The Duke stormed an interruption. "'I don't ask what you thought. I ask you, will you swear it was?' The Duke's anger was more than Barnes could face. He was silent. Moisey showed a larger courage. "'I could have sworn that it was at the time, Your Grace, but now it seems to me that it's a rummy go.' "'A rummy go!' The peculiarity of the phrase did not seem to strike the Duke just then. At least he echoed it as if it didn't. "'You call it a rummy go? Do you know that I am told in this letter that the woman who entered the carriage was not the Duchess? What you are thinking about, or what case you will be able to make out for yourselves, you know better than I.' But I can tell you this, that in an hour you will leave my service, and you may esteem yourselves fortunate if, to-night, you are not both of you sleeping in jail. One might almost have suspected that the words were spoken in irony, but before they could answer, another servant entered, who also brought a letter for the Duke. When his grace's glance fell on it, he uttered an exclamation. The writing on the envelope was the same writing that had been on the envelope which had contained the very singular communication like it in all respects, down to the broomstick and thickness of the private and very pressing in the corner. "'Who brought this?' stormed the Duke. The servant appeared to be a little startled by the violence of his grace's manner. "'A lady, or at least your grace, she seemed to be a lady. "'Where is she?' "'She came in a hansom, your grace. She gave me that letter and said, "'Give that to the Duke of Datchet at once, without a moment's delay. 
Then she got into the hansom again and drove away. Why didn't you stop her? Your grace. The man seemed surprised, as though the idea of stopping chance visitors to the ducal mansion via Armée had not, until that moment, entered into his philosophy. The duke continued to regard the man as if he could say a good deal if he chose. Then he pointed to the door. His lips said nothing, but his gesture much. The servant vanished. Another hoax, the duke said grimly as he tore the envelope open. This time the envelope contained a sheet of paper, and in the sheet of paper another envelope. The duke unfolded the sheet of paper. On it some words were written, these. The Duchess appears so particularly anxious to drop you a line that one really hasn't the heart to refuse her. Her Grace's communication, written amidst blinding tears, you will find enclosed with this. Knowles, said the Duke, in a voice which actually trembled. Knowles, hoax or no hoax, I will be even with the gentleman who wrote that. Handing the sheet of paper to Mr. Knowles, His Grace turned his attention to the envelope which had been enclosed. It was a small square envelope of the finest quality, and it reeked with perfume. The Duke's countenance assumed an added frown. He had no fondness for envelopes which were scented. In the centre of the envelope were the words, To the Duke of Datchet, written in the big, bold, sprawling hand which he knew so well. "'Mabel's writing,' he said, half to himself, as with shaking fingers he tore the envelope open. The sheet of paper which he took out was almost as stiff as cardboard. It, too, emitted what his grace deemed the nauseous odour of the perfumer's shop. On it was written this letter. "'My dear Herwood, for heaven's sake do what these people require. I don't know what has happened or where I am, but I am nearly distracted. They have already cut off some of my hair, and they tell me that if you don't let them have five hundred pounds in gold by half-past five they will cut off my little finger, too. I would sooner die than lose my little finger, and I don't know what else besides. By the token which I send you, and which has never until now been off my breast, I conjure you to help me. Herwood, help me. When he read that letter, the Duke turned white, very white, as white as the paper on which it was written. He passed the epistle on to Knowles. I suppose that also is a hoax. Mr. Knowles was silent. He still yielded to his constitutional disrelish to commit himself. At last he asked, What is it that your grace proposes to do? The duke spoke with a bitterness which almost suggested a personal animosity toward the inoffensive Mr. Knowles. I propose, with your permission, to release the Duchess from the custody of my estimable correspondent. I propose, always with your permission, to comply with his modest request, and to take him his five hundred pounds in gold. He paused, then continued in a tone which, coming from him, meant volumes. Afterwards, I propose to cry quits with the concoctor of this petty little hoax, even if it cost me every penny I possess. He shall pay more for that five hundred pounds than he supposes. End of chapter one. Chapter two. The Duke of Datchet, coming out of the bank, lingered for a moment on the steps. In one hand he carried a canvas bag which seemed well weighted. On his countenance there was an expression which, to a casual observer, might have suggested that his grace was not completely at his ease. That casual observer happened to come strolling by. 
It took the form of Ivor Dacre. Mr. Dacre looked at the Duke of Datchet up and down in that languid way he has. He perceived the canvas bag. Then he remarked, possibly intending to be facetious, "'Been robbing the bank? Shall I call a cart?' "'Nobody minds what Ivor Dacre says. "'Besides, he is the Duke's own cousin. "'Perhaps a little removed still. There it is.' "'So the Duke smiled a sickly smile, "'as if Mr. Dacre's delicate wit had given him a passing touch of indigestion. "'Mr. Dacre noticed that the Duke looked sallow, "'so he gave his pretty sense of humour another airing. "'Kitchen boiler burst? When I saw the Duchess just now, I wondered if it had.' His grace distinctly started. He almost dropped the canvas bag. "'You saw the Duchess just now, Ivor? Win!' The Duke was evidently moved. Mr. Dacre was stirred to languid curiosity. "'I can't say I clocked it. Perhaps half an hour ago? Maybe a little more?' "'Half an hour ago? Are you sure? Where did you see her?' Mr. Dacre wondered. The Duchess of Datchet could scarcely have been eloping in broad daylight— Moreover, she had not yet been married a year. Everyone knew that she and the Duke were still as fond of each other as if they were not man and wife. So, although the Duke, for some cause or other, was evidently in an odd state of agitation, Mr. Dacre saw no reason why he should not make a clean breast of all he knew. She was going like blazes in a handsome cab. In a handsome cab? Where? Down Waterloo Place. Was she alone? Mr. Dacre reflected. He glanced at the Duke out of the corners of his eyes. His languid utterance became a positive drawl. "'I rather fancy that she wasn't. Who was with her?' "'My dear fellow, if you were to offer me the bank, I couldn't tell you. Was it a man?' Mr. Dacre's drawl became still more pronounced. "'I rather fancy that it was.' Mr. Dacre expected something. The Duke was so excited, but he by no means expected what actually came. "'Ivor, she's been kidnapped!' Mr. Dacre did what had never been known to do before within the memory of man. He dropped his eyeglasses. "'Dash it! She has! Some scoundrel has decoyed her away and trapped her. He's already sent me a lock of her hair, and he tells me that if I don't let him have five hundred pounds in gold by half-past five, he'll let me have her little finger!' Mr. Dacre did not know what to make of his grace at all. He was a sober man. It couldn't be that. Mr. Dacre felt really concerned. "'I'll call a cab, old man, and you'd better let me see you home.' Mr. Dacre half raised his stick to hail a passing hansom. The Duke caught him by the arm. "'You ass! What do you mean? I'm telling you the simple truth. My wife's been kidnapped!' Mr. Dacre's countenance was a thing to be seen, and remembered. "'Oh, I hadn't heard that there was much of that sort of thing about just now. They talk of poodles being kidnapped, but as for duchesses, you'd really better let me call that cab.' "'Ivor, do you want me to kick you? Don't you see that to me it's a question of life and death? I've been in there to get the money!' His grace motioned toward the bank. "'I'm going to take it to the scoundrel who has my darling at his mercy!' Let me but have her hand in mine again, and he shall continue to pay for every sovereign with tears of blood until he dies. Look here, Dadgett, I don't know if you're having a joke with me, or if you're not well. The Duke stepped impatiently into the roadway. Ivor, you're a fool! Can't you tell jest from earnest, health from disease? I'm off. 
Are you coming with me? It would be as well that I should have a witness. Where are you off to? To the other end of the arcade. Who is the gentleman you expect to have the pleasure of meeting there? How should I know? The Duke took a letter from his pocket. It was the letter which had just arrived. The fellow is to wear a white top hat and a gardenia in his buttonhole. What is it you have there? It's the letter which brought the news. Look for yourself and see, but for God's sake, make haste. His grace glanced at his watch. It's already twenty after five. And do you mean to say that on the strength of a letter such as this you are going to hand over five hundred pounds to— The Duke cut Mr. Dacre short. What are five hundred pounds to me? Besides, you don't know all. There is another letter, and I have heard from Mabel. But I will tell you all about that later. If you are coming, come. Folding up the letter, Mr. Dacre returned it to the Duke. As you say, what are five hundred pounds to you? It is well they are not as much to you as they are to me, or I'm afraid— Hang it! I will do prose afterwards! The Duke hurried across the road. Mr. Dacre hastened after him. As they entered the arcade, they passed a constable. Mr. Dacre touched his companion's arm. Don't you think we'd better ask our friend in blue to walk behind us? His neighborhood might be handy. Nonsense! The Duke stopped short. Ivor, this is my affair, not yours. If you are not content to play the part of silent witness, be so good as to leave me. My dear Datchet, I'm entirely at your service. I can be every whit as insane as you, I do assure you. Side by side they moved rapidly down the Burlington Arcade. The Duke was obviously in a state of the extremest nervous tension. Mr. Dacre was equally obviously in a state of the most supreme enjoyment. People stared as they rushed past. The Duke saw nothing. Mr. Dacre saw everything and smiled. When they reached the Piccadilly end of the arcade, the Duke pulled up. He looked about him. Mr. Dacre also looked about him. "'I see nothing of your white-hatted and gardenia buttonholed friend,' said Ivor. The Duke referred to his watch. "'It's not yet half-past five. I'm up to time.' Mr. Dacre held his stick in front of him and leaned on it. He indulged himself with a beatific smile. "'It strikes me, my dear old Datchet, that you've been the victim of one of the finest things in hoaxes. I hope I haven't kept you waiting.' The voice which interrupted Mr. Dacre came from the rear. While they were looking in front of them, someone approached them from behind, apparently coming out of the shop which was at their backs. The speaker looked a gentleman. He sounded like one, too. Costume, appearance, manner were beyond reproach even beyond the criticism of two such keen critics as were these. The glorious attire of a London dandy was surmounted with a beautiful white top-hat. In his buttonhole was a magnificent gardenia. In age the stranger was scarcely more than a boy, and a sunny-faced handsome boy at that. His cheeks were hairless, his eyes were blue. His smile was not only innocent, it was bland. Never was there a more conspicuous illustration of that repose which stamps the caste of Vere de Vere. The Duke looked at him and glowered. Mr. Dacre looked at him and smiled. "'Who are you?' asked the Duke. "'Ah, that is the question.' The newcomer's refined and musical voice breathed the very soul of affability. "'I am an individual who is so unfortunate as to be in want of five hundred pounds.' "'Are you the scoundrel who sent me that infamous letter?' The charming stranger never turned a hair. 
I am the scoundrel mentioned in that infamous letter who wants to accost you at the Piccadilly end of the Burlington Arcade before half-past five, as witness my white hat and my gardenia. "'Where's my wife?' The stranger gently swung his stick in front of him with his two hands. He regarded the Duke as a merry-hearted son might regard his father. The thing was beautiful. "'Her Grace will be home almost as soon as you are, when you have given me the money which I perceive you have all ready for me in that scarcely elegant-looking canvas bag.' He shrugged his shoulders quite gracefully. "'Unfortunately, in these matters one has no choice. One is forced to ask for gold.' "'And suppose, instead of giving you what is in this canvas bag, I take you by the throat and choke the life right out of you?' "'Or suppose?' amended Mr. Dacre, that you do better, and commend this gentleman to the tender mercies of the first policeman we encounter. The stranger turned to Mr. Dacre. He condescended to become conscious of his presence. "'Is this gentleman your grace's friend?' "'Ah, Mr. Dacre, I perceive. I have the honour of knowing Mr. Dacre, though possibly I am unknown to him.' "'You were, until this moment.' With an airy little laugh, the stranger returned to the duke. He brushed an invisible speck of dust off the sleeve of his coat. As has been intimated in this infamous letter, his grace is at perfect liberty to give me into custody. Why not? Only, he said it with his boyish smile, if a particular communication is not received from me in certain quarters, within a certain time, the Duchess of Datchet's beautiful white arm will be hacked off at the shoulder. "'You hound!' The duke would have taken the stranger by the throat, and have done his best to choke the life right out of him then and there, if Mr. Dacre had not intervened. "'Steady, old man!' Mr. Dacre turned to the stranger. "'You appear to be a pretty sort of scoundrel!' The stranger gave his shoulders that almost imperceptible shrug. "'Oh, my dear Dacre, I am in want of money. I believe that you sometimes are in want of money, too.' Everybody knows that nobody knows where Ivor Dacre gets his money from, so the illusion must have tickled him immensely. "'You're a cool hand,' he said. "'Some men are born that way.' "'So I should imagine. Men like you must be born, not made.' "'Precisely, as you say.' The stranger turned with a graceful smile to the Duke. "'But are we not wasting precious time?' I can assure your grace that, in this particular matter, moments are of value." Mr. Dacre interposed before the Duke could answer. "'If you take my strongly urged advice, Statchett, you will summon this constable who is now coming down the arcade, and hand this gentleman over to his keeping. I do not think that you need fear that the Duchess will lose her arm, or even her little finger. Scoundrels of this one's kidney are most amenable to reason when they have handcuffs on their wrists.' The Duke plainly hesitated. He would, and he would not. The stranger, as he eyed him, seemed much amused. "'My dear Duke, by all means act on Mr. Dacre's valuable suggestion. As I said before, why not? It would at least be interesting to see if the Duchess does or does not lose her arm. Almost as interesting to you as to Mr. Dacre. Those blackmailing, kidnapping scoundrels do use such empty menaces. Besides, you would have the pleasure of seeing me locked up. My imprisonment for life will recompense you even for the loss of Her Grace's arm. And five hundred pounds is such a sum to have to pay merely for a wife. 
why not therefore act on mr dacre's suggestion here comes the constable the constable referred to was advancing toward them he was not a dozen yards away let me beckon to him i will with pleasure he took out his watch a gold chronograph repeater there are scarcely ten minutes left during which it will be possible for me to send the communication which i spoke of so that it may arrive in time as it will then be too late and the instruments are already prepared for the little operation which her grace is eagerly anticipating it would perhaps be as well after all that you should give me into charge you would have saved your five hundred pounds and you would at any rate have something in exchange for her grace's mutilated limb ah here is the constable officer the stranger spoke with such a pleasant little air of easy geniality that it was impossible to tell if he were in jest or in earnest this fact impressed the duke much more than if he had gone in for a liberal indulgence of the under the circumstances orthodox melodramatic scowling and indeed in the face of his own common sense it impressed mr ivor dacre too this well-bred well-groomed youth was just the being to realize au bout des anglais a modern type of the devil the type which depicts himself as a perfect gentleman who keeps smiling all the time the constable whom this audacious rogue had signalled approached the little group he addressed the stranger do you want me sir no i do not want you i think it is the duke of datchet the constable who knew the duke very well by sight saluted him as he turned to receive instructions the duke looked white even savage there was not a pleasant look in his eyes and about his lips he appeared to be endeavouring to put a great restraint upon himself there was a momentary silence mr dacre made a movement as if to interpose the duke caught him by the arm he spoke no constable i do not want you this person is mistaken the constable looked as if he could not quite make out how such a mistake could have arisen hesitated then with another salute he moved away the stranger was still holding his watch in his hand only eight minutes he said the duke seemed to experience some difficulty in giving utterance to what he had to say if i give you this five hundred pounds you you as the duke paused as if at a loss for language which was strong enough to convey his meaning the stranger laughed let us take adjectives for granted besides it is only boys who call each other names men do things if you give me the five hundred sovereigns which you have in that bag at once in five minutes it will be too late i will promise i will not swear if you do not credit my simple promise you will not believe my solemn affirmations i will promise that possibly within an hour certainly within an hour and a half the duchess of datchet shall return to you absolutely uninjured except of course as you are already aware with regard to a few of the hairs on her head i will promise this on the understanding that you do not yourself attempt to see where i go and that you will allow no one else to do so this with a glance at ivor dacre i shall know at once if i am followed if you entertain such intentions you had better on all accounts remain in possession of your five hundred pounds the duke eyed him very grimly i entertain no such intentions until the duchess returns again the stranger indulged in that musical laugh of his ah until the duchess returns of course then the bargain's at an end when you are at once more in the enjoyment of her grace's society you will be at liberty to set all the dogs in europe at my heels 
I assure you I fully expect that you will do so. Why not? The Duke raised the canvas bag. My dear Duke, ten thousand thanks. You shall see her grace at Datchet House, upon my honour, possibly within the hour. Well, commented Ivor Dacre, when the stranger had vanished with the bag into Piccadilly, and as the Duke and himself moved toward Burlington Gardens, if a gentleman is to be robbed, it is as well that he should have another gentleman rob him. End of chapter 2 Chapter 3 Mr. Dacre eyed his companion covertly as they progressed. His grace of Datchet appeared to have some fresh cause for uneasiness. All at once he gave it utterance, in a tone of voice which is extremely sombre. Ivor, do you think that scoundrel will dare to play me false? I think, murmured Mr. Dacre, that he has dared to play you pretty false already. I don't mean that, but I mean how am I to know, now that he has his money, that he will not still keep Mabel in his clutches? There came an echo from Mr. Dacre. Just so, how are you to know? I believe that something of this sort has been done in the States. I thought that there they were content to kidnap them after they were dead. I was not aware that they had as yet got so far as the living. I believe I have heard of something just like this. Possibly they are giants over there. And in that case the scoundrels, when their demands were met, refused to keep to the letter of their bargain and asked for more. The duke stood still. He clenched his fists and swore. Ivor, if that villain doesn't keep his word and Mabel isn't home within the hour by, I shall go mad. My dear Datchet, Mr. Dacre loved strong language as little as he loved a scene. Let us trust a time and a little to your white-hatted and gardenia buttonholed friend's word of honour. You should have thought of possible eventualities before you showed your confidence, really. Suppose, instead of going mad, we first of all go home. A hansom stood waiting for a fare at the end of the arcade. Mr. Dacre had handed the Duke into it before his grace had quite realised that the vehicle was there. Tell the fellow to drive faster! That was what the Duke said when the cab had started. My dear Datchet, the man's already driving his gearage off its legs. If a bobby catches sight of him, he'll take his number. A moment later, a murmur from the Duke. I don't know if you're aware that the Prince is coming to dinner. I am perfectly aware of it. You take it uncommonly cool how easy it is to bear our brother's burdens. Ivor, if Mabel doesn't turn up, I shall feel like murder. I sympathize with you, Datchet, with all my heart, though I may observe, parenthetically, that I very far from realize the situation even yet. Take my advice. If the Duchess does not show quite as soon as we both of us desire, don't make a scene. Just let me see what I can do. Judging from the expression of his countenance, the Duke was conscious of no overwhelming desire to witness an exhibition of Mr. Dacre's prowess. When the cab reached Datchet House, his grace dashed up the steps three at a time. The door flew open. "'Has the Duchess returned?' "'Howard!' A voice floated downward from above. Someone came running down the stairs. It was her grace of Datchet. "'Mabel!' She actually rushed into the Duke's extended arms, and he kissed her, and she kissed him before the servants. "'So you're not quite dead!' she cried. "'I am almost!' he said. She drew herself a little away from him. "'Howard, were you seriously hurt?' "'Do you suppose that I could have been otherwise than seriously hurt?' "'My darling, was it a Pickford's van?' 
the Duke stared. Uh, Pickford's van? I don't understand, but come in here, come along, Ivor, Mabel, you don't see Ivor. How do you do, Mr. Dacre? Then the trio withdrew into a little anteroom. It was really time. Even then the pair conducted themselves as if Mr. Dacre had been nothing and no one. The Duke took the lady's two hands in his. He eyed her fondly. "'So you are uninjured, with the exception of that log of hair. Where did the villain take it from?' The lady looked a little puzzled. "'What log of hair?' From an envelope which he took from his pocket the Duke produced a shining tress. It was the lock of hair which had arrived in the first communication. "'I will have it framed!' "'You will have what framed?' The Duchess glanced at what the Duke was so tenderly caressing, almost, as it seemed, a little dubiously. "'Whatever is it you have there?' "'It is the lock of hair which that scoundrel sent me!' Something in the lady's face caused him to ask a question. "'Did he tell you he had sent it to me?' "'Howard! Did the brute tell you he meant to cut off your finger?' A very curious look came into the lady's face. She glanced at the Duke as if she, all at once, was half afraid of him. She cast at Mr. Dacre what really seemed to be a look of inquiry. Her voice was tremulously anxious. "'Howard, did, did the accident affect you mentally?' "'How could it not have affected me mentally? Do you think my mental organization is of steel?' "'But you look so well.' "'Of course I look well now that I have you back again. Tell me, darling, did that hound actually threaten you with cutting off your arm? If he did, I shall feel half inclined to kill him yet.' The Duchess seemed positively to shrink from her better half's near neighbourhood. "'What? Was it a Pickford's van?' The Duke seemed puzzled. Well, he might be. "'Was what a Pickford van?' The lady turned to Mr. Dacre. In her voice there was a ring of anguish. "'Mr. Dacre, tell me, was it a Pickford's van?' Ivor could only imitate his relative's repetition of her inquiry. "'I didn't quite catch you. Was what a Pickford's van?' The Duchess clasped her hands in front of her. "'What is it you are keeping from me? What is it you are trying to hide? I implore you to tell me the worst, whatever it may be. Do not keep me any longer in suspense. You do not know what I have already endured. Mr. Taker, is my husband mad?' One need scarcely observe that the lady's amazing appeal to Mr. Dacre as to her husband's sanity was received with something like surprise. As the Duke continued to stare at her, a dreadful fear began to loom in his brain. "'My darling, your brain is unhinged!' He advanced to take her two hands again in his, but, to his unmistakable distress, she shrank away from him. "'Howard, don't touch me! How is it that I missed you? Why did you not wait until I came?' "'Wait until you came?' The Duke's bewilderment increased. "'Surely, if your injuries turned out, after all, to be slight, that was all the more reason why you should have waited after sending for me like that.' "'I sent for you, I?' The Duke's tone was grave. "'My darling, perhaps you had better come upstairs.' "'Not until we have had an explanation. You must have known that I should come. Why did you not wait for me after you had sent me that?' The Duchess held out something to the Duke. He took it. It was a card, his own visiting card. Something was written on the back of it. He read aloud what was written. "'Mabel, come to me at once with the bearer. They tell me that they cannot take me home. It looks like my own writing.' "'Looks like it. It is your writing.' "'It looks like it, and written with a shaky pen.' 
dear child, one's hand would shake at such a moment as that. Mabel, where did you get this? It was brought to me at Kane and Wilson's. Who brought it? Who brought it? Why, the man you sent. The man I sent? A light burst upon the Duke's brain. He fell back a pace. It's the decoy! Her grace echoed the words. The decoy? The scoundrel to set the trap with such a bait! My poor innocent darling! Did you think it came from me? Tell me, Mabel, where did he cut off your hair? Cut off my hair? Her grace put her hand to her head as if to make sure that her hair was there. Where did he take you to? He took me to Draper's Buildings. Draper's Buildings? I have never been in the city before, but he told me it was Draper's Buildings. Isn't that near the Stock Exchange? Near the Stock Exchange? It seemed rather a curious place to which to take a kidnapped victim. The man's audacity. He told me that you were coming out of the Stock Exchange when a van knocked you over. He said that he thought it was a Pickford's van. Was it a Pickford's van? No, it was not a Pickford's van. Mabel, were you in Draper's Buildings when you wrote that letter? Wrote what letter? Have you forgotten it already? I do not believe that there was a word in it which will not be branded on my brain until I die. Howard, what do you mean? Surely you cannot have written me such a letter as that and then forgotten it already. He handed her the letter which had arrived in the second communication. She glanced at it askance. Then she took it with a little gasp. Howard, if you don't mind, I think I'll take a chair. She took a chair. Whatever, whatever's this? As she read the letter, the varying expressions which passed across her face were, in themselves, a study in psychology. Is it possible that you can imagine that under any conceivable circumstances I could have written such a letter as this? Mabel! She rose to her feet with emphasis. Howard, don't say you thought this came from me! Not from you? He remembered Noel's diplomatic reception of the epistle on its first appearance. I suppose you will say next that this is not a lock of your hair. My dear child, what bee have you got in your bonnet? This a lock of my hair? Why, it's not the least bit like my hair. Which was certainly inaccurate. As far as colour was concerned, it was an almost perfect match. The Duke turned to Mr. Dacre. Ivor, I've had to go through a good deal this afternoon. If I have to go through much more, something will crack. He touched his forehead. I think it's my turn to take a chair. Not the one which the Duchess had vacated, but one which faced it. He stretched out his legs in front of him. He thrust his hands into his trouser pockets. He said, in a tone which was not gloomy, but absolutely gruesome, Might I ask, Mabel, if you have been kidnapped? Kidnapped? The word I used was kidnapped. But I will spell it, if you like, or I will get a dictionary, that you may see its meaning." The Duchess looked as if she was beginning to be not quite sure if she was awake or sleeping. She turned to Ivor. "'Mr. Taker, has the accident affected Herwood's brain?' The Duke took the words out of his cousin's mouth. "'On that point, my dear, let me ease your mind. I don't know if you are under the impression that I should be in the same shape after a Pickford's van had run over me as I was before, but, in any case, I have not been run over by a Pickford's van. So far as I am concerned, there has been no accident. Dismiss that delusion from your mind. Oh! You appear surprised. One might even think you were sorry. But may I now ask what you did when you arrived at Draper's Buildings? Did? I looked for you! 
Indeed. And when you had looked in vain, what was the next item in your program? The lady shrank still farther from him. Herwood, have you been having a jest at my expense? Can you have been so cruel? Tears stood in her eyes. Rising, the duke laid his hand upon her arm. Mabel, tell me, what did you do when you had looked for me in vain? I looked for you upstairs, downstairs, and everywhere. It was quite a large place. It took me ever such a time. I thought that I should go, distracted. Nobody seemed to know anything about you, or even that there had been an accident at all. It was all officers. I couldn't make it out in the least, and the people didn't seem to be able to make me out either. So, when I couldn't find you anywhere, I came straight home again. The Duke was silent for a moment. Then, with a funeral gravity, he turned to Mr. Dacre. He put to him this question. Ivor, what are you laughing at? Mr. Dacre drew his hand across his mouth with a rather suspicious gesture. My dear fellow, only a smile. The Duchess looked from one to the other. What have you two been doing? What is the joke? With an air of preternatural solemnity, the Duke took two letters from the breast pocket of his coat. Mabel, you have already seen your letter. You have already seen the lock of your hair. Just look at this and that. He gave her the two very singular communications which had arrived in such a mysterious manner, and so quickly one after the other. She read them with wide open eyes. Herbert, wherever did these come from? The Duke was standing with his legs apart and his hands in his trouser pockets. I would give... I would give another five hundred pounds to know. Shall I tell you, madam, what I have been doing? I have been presenting five hundred golden sovereigns to a perfect stranger with a top hat and a gardenia in his buttonhole. Whatever for? If you have perused these documents which you have in your hand, you will have some faint idea. Ivor, when it's your funeral, I'll smile. Mabel, Duchess of Datchet, it is beginning to dawn upon the vacuum which represents my brain that I've been the victim of one of the prettiest things and practical jokes that ever yet was planned. When that fellow brought you that card at Kane and Wilson's, which, I need scarcely tell you, never came from me, someone walked out the front entrance who was so exactly like you, both Barnes and Moisey took her for you. Moisey showed her into the carriage, and Barnes drove her home. But when the carriage reached home it was empty. Your double had got out upon the road. The Duchess uttered a sound which was half gasp, half sigh. Herbert! Barnes and Moisey, with beautiful and childlike innocence, when they found that they had brought the thing home empty, they came straight away and told me you had jumped out of the brougham while it had been driving full pelt through the streets. While I was digesting that piece of information, there came the first epistle with a lock of your hair. Before I had time to digest that, there came the second epistle with yours inside. It seems incredible. It sounds incredible, but unfathomable is the folly of man, especially of a man who loves his wife. The Duke crossed to Mr. Dacre. I don't want, Ivor, to suggest anything in the way of bribery and corruption, but if you could keep this matter to yourself, not mention it to your friends, our white-hatted and gardenia buttonholed acquaintance is welcome to his five hundred pounds, and— Mabel, what on earth are you laughing at? The Duchess appeared all at once to be seized with inextinguishable laughter. Herwood, just think how that man must be laughing at you! And the Duke of Datchet thought of it. End of the Lost Duchess
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.